All right, I hear them singing, and uh, there's some good amount of youth activity going on here tonight. A lot of times I can't hear them, but I'm, I hear them here tonight, so praise the Lord. The title of tonight's message, though, is Peaceful Sleep. Peaceful Sleep. You see, when you're thinking about peace, the opposite of that, though, is conflict. And conflict and restlessness are the opposite of peace and rest. And of course, God promises peace and rest to his children, but often we end up going through life focused or experiencing conflict and restlessness instead. You see, by default, one's internal mental state is tied to his external circumstances. I say that that is by default. The natural tendency or the natural mind associates the circumstances that one is going through with what their mentality or attitude is going to be in whatever it is that they're facing. But you see, the man and woman of faith, that doesn't have to be true for him or her. Our happiness, our sense of rest, our sense of peace should have nothing to do with our circumstances because we would see that a faithful God, a loving God, a good God is in control of all of it and is in charge of all of it and is undertaking in our lives regardless of what the circumstances are such that because of his promises, because of his faithfulness, because of his character, because of his constant provision for us, we have access to peace and rest regardless of the circumstances that we're facing. And that's a huge distinction for the man and woman of faith compared to the default thinking of the natural man or what the world would teach, where the world would teach that our happiness is directly tied to our circumstances. It's directly tied to our possessions. It's directly tied to how we're feeling at any point in time. But God's word says, no, our happiness, our peace, and our joy are tied to our relationship with him and his provision for us, regardless of the circumstances that we are facing. When you think about God who's saying that, Isaiah 26.3 is one of my favorite promises, and it says, God promises that the one whose thoughts are fixed on him will experience perfect peace. I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. So when he says, I'll keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, the trigger there is where is your mind at? Where is your thinking at? And if your thinking is fixed on God, that's what it means to have your mind stayed on God. But if your thoughts are fixed on God, then it says you will have God's peace, but that has nothing again to do with our circumstances. But what is the trigger in all of that? Because he trusts in me. I'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on me because he trusts in me. See, unless you're trusting the Lord, you'll never have your eyes fixed on him. You won't be occupied by him. But when we're occupied with him because we're trusting in him, then we experience God's peace. And so the question ultimately comes down to the fundamental question that we face each and every day is, will we trust God? Will we give him over the things that we're going through, the trials that we're going through? Will we cast those cares, worries, concerns, anxieties that naturally we face due to, well, the curse of sin, due to our circumstances, due to the people that are around us, due to our own choices, due to our personality at times, just the way we're naturally wired? Will we take all of that in, those struggles and those conflicts and those difficulties, and will we give them to the Lord? And naturally, when we're trusting him as the solution to all of our needs and we're trusting that he can provide and undertake to meet every need that we have, we'll give those things to him. So the question 
is pretty simple when you sift through it all is, am I presently going to trust the Lord or am I not? And your decision as to whether or not you'll trust the Lord, it's going to determine the amount of spiritual rest and even physical sleep that you experience in life. And you think about, are you fatigued? Are you tired? Could you, leave, could you use a little bit more sleep? Could you use a little bit more rest? The Bible says that primarily focused on the spiritual realm, but when we're trusting him, then we're going to experience his peace and rest. But he goes even one step for, further than that to say, naturally, if we're experiencing spiritually, our mentality is affected and impacted by the peace and rest and joy that God provides to us when we're trusting him, then naturally we're going to experience even physical rest to an extent that we otherwise would not. So again, the contrast between God's rest or a restless life. Think about, apply that to your sleep tonight. Is it going to be a restless night of sleep because you're focused on or or consumed by or wrapped up in worry and anxiety about the circumstances around you? Or is it going to be God's kind of restful sleep that is provided through dependence and trusting Him? Well, David had to face this. This is not something that is new. Every man or woman of faith from the very beginning until now has run into different days and different trials and different circumstances that force them to make a decision. In this trial or this circumstance, am I going to trust God? And if I trust him, I'll be able to experience his rest and, his, and the sleep that comes, a peaceful sleep that comes from knowing that he's in control and knowing that he will undertake to meet my every need or... Am I going to lean on my own understanding? Am I going to carry this weight myself? Am I going to go through the rest of this day and even the night as I lie down to sleep? Am I going to do that restlessly? And so let's turn to Psalm 4 if you haven't already. A little bit of an introduction there. But I have the theme of Psalm 4 here as peaceful sleep. That's where the title came from because it says in the last verse of this psalm that that is what the result will be of trusting God. Let's just read through this psalm together. It's not that long. And then I have quite a few observations that I want us to work through as we look at each verse individually. But verse 1 of chapter 4. Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, this psalm is dear to me. In fact, that verse 8, the hangs on the wall on a, on a painted plaque above my bed. And it's a very good reminder that our source of peaceful sleep is going to be tied to God's provision and care for us, but ultimately it's also going to be tied to whether or not we're willing to trust Him. So if, you're, if you had a long day and you're kind of dozing off already, that's, that's the takeaway from the message tonight, is that God has made it possible for us to sleep peacefully knowing that He's in control. 
The question is, will I trust him or will I not? Now, let's dig into it a little deeper. We'll look at verse 1 here. I have verse 1 for me just says, God help me. That's what David is really saying or expressing in verse 1 is, God help me. And when you think about prayers of petition, they involve requesting something from God for yourself. Now, it's not an intercessory type of a prayer where you're requesting something from God, but on the benefit or for somebody else's need to meet their need. It's about your own personal relationship with God, recognizing that you're in a place, you're in a, you're in a bind, you're in a tough spot. You need God to undertake in your life in some way. And so you cry out to him, God help me. You know, sometimes I think we get the idea that to interact with God in that way would be selfish. And in some ways, if that's the only way you ever interact with God, that's the only thing you ever want to talk to him about things that you need, uh, perhaps you are being selfish. Perhaps he hasn't given you a concern for the people in your life the way that you ought to have that concern so that when you would pray, you would want to be considering their needs in your prayers too. But there's nothing selfish or wrong about calling out to God for help. He says that is who he is. He's the one who can help. He's the one who can rescue. He's the one who can deliver. He's the one who can save. He's the one who can fight for us when we're absolutely incapable of doing any of those things the way that he would. And so he's saying, if you trust me and you see your own inadequacy and your own insufficiency, you'll see that your adequacy and sufficiency and your ability to cope with the circumstances of life or to even serve me in the way that I've called you to, it's going to come from being focused on me, crying out to me, and then letting me work in and through you, undertake, letting me undertake in your life. So I have, God help me. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. I hope you're encouraged by that. David was in a tough spot. We know from the context of Psalm 3 that Absalom, his son, was trying to usurp him, was trying to throw him out of the kingdom and to take over his place as king of Israel. And that was a tough spot to have your own son leading a rebellion against you and you were on the run while he was seeking your life. And many of the people who you had thought would be loyal to you had in fact shown their true colors and were in fact going with Absalom. And so many scholars believe that Psalm 4 here is directly tied to Psalm 3. I'm not an expert on it, so I can't say. That may be the circumstance that David is still talking about in Psalm 4, what he was going through from Psalm 3 with dealing with Absalom. But regardless, he was in a spot where he was in a place of distress. And so he cried out to God, God help me. So when you think about the appropriateness of crying out to God with a particular need that you have in your life, it's absolutely appropriate, especially when you think about how children interact with their parents. You see, every child naturally interacts with his parent that way if it's a healthy familial setting. A child recognizes his need. A child recognizes his limitations. A child recognizes that his parent is going to have to undertake to provide for him in ways he cannot for himself. So, children naturally look to their parents for assistance with the things that they're struggling with. And flip that conversation now to the part of the parent. A good parent naturally helps his children and meets their needs when he's made aware of them. I say a good parent does that. Even most mediocre parents do that, right? When they are aware of a child's need, one of their own children's need, they undertake to try to meet that child's need or to help or assist that child with what they're going through. Well, that's the kind of mentality that we ought to have with our Heavenly Father. And David had that kind of a thought process and he had that relationship with 
his heavenly father. When he found himself in a place of need, he cried out for help. And so David learned that. He learned to view God that way. He was quick to ask for help when needed. Now, how did he learn that? Well, he learned that through past experience. He trusted God enough with certain things in his life that he cried out to God for help earlier in his life in other circumstances. He found God to be what? Faithful. And as he saw God's faithfulness and God's provision to undertake to meet whatever particular need he had had previously in life, it strengthened his faith. It caused him to have more confidence that God would undertake to meet whatever the need was when it next came up. And that's the idea of living life with God, learning to depend on him in a a more regular day-to-day kind of experiential way as you grow in your faith. As you grow in your faith, you don't need God less. You see that you need God more. As you grow in your faith, you don't cry out to God less. You see that you need to cry out to him more. Many people think that growing in their faith means that they won't need God for as many things because they'll finally have arrived and have it all figured out. That's just not true, friends. A sign of maturity is, is to have a humility that recognizes without, without you I can do nothing, absolutely nothing. But there's nothing I can't do with you. Oh, I need you. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. That's the mentality of one who has gotten past themselves and has grown up in their faith a little bit to see that this whole thing revolves around a focus on him. This whole thing has, not, has less to do with what I can do for God and has more of a focus on what God can do for me, has done for me, wants to do in and through me. That I'm just a conduit for God to work through to shine his light and to accomplish his plan in the world around me. David, he started to see that. In Psalm 54, 4, David also wrote, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Do you see God that way? As the upholder of your life? The one who's putting the support beams underneath your life, keeping the whole thing from becoming a train wreck? As Eric says, a dumpster fire, a grease fire, a kitchen fire. What is it, Eric? Something like that. God's the only one who's capable of shoring that thing up so that in some way, in some measure, it could bring him honor and glory. Because without him doing that, of course, that isn't what happens. We exalt ourselves. We become deceived by the world around us, by the satanic attack that says, no, you're the center of everything. You're the focus of your own life. You lean on your own understanding. You don't need God. That's what the world, of course, is teaching as a sat- one of Satan's lies. But then when you look at verse 1 here, you see, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. I just want to touch on that briefly. O God of my righteousness refers to God being the source of vindication. It doesn't, David was unjustly being persecuted and pursued and afflicted, but David realized that God was the arbiter of who was in the right and who would vindicate him. See, God is the one who he was depending on there to sort of stand for him, to fight for him, to, I say again, vindicate him. So just a passing comment, he wasn't focused on how he would need to do that for himself. He was giving that over to the Lord. Now, of course, we know that God himself is the only source of anything that is right, and so that, that isn't the focus of that right there, but that is what 
also hap- it happens to be a truth, but it's an axiomatic truth, but it's not something that is, that is the focus there. The focus there is God will ultimately vindicate me. I'm calling out to you because I'm being treated unjustly. I'm in a place of distress and persecution, and I know that, God, you will vindicate me is the idea there. Now, David communicates a very specific request, though. It's not just, help me, God. He has a very specific request for God, and it's this. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Now, note the continued personal nature of David's request. He's not talking about somebody else's problems here. He's not focused on the affairs of the world around him or the community around him. He's focused on a very real set of circumstances and trials that he's going through. Now think of your own life. Right now you've got some hard things in your life, I guarantee it. I, I don't know what they are. Not, not for all of you, I might know what some of them are. But you've got hard things. You've got trials, you've got circumstances, you've got troubles. Just as Jesus promised. And in this life you will have trouble, but you can still be of good cheer because I have overcome, he says. And because you're in me and I'm in you, you're an overcomer because I'm an overcomer. A passage that is sometimes misunderstood. But you've got troubles, you've got trials, you've got hard circumstances that you're facing right now. And David is really quick to keep this focused on this personal thing that he's going through, this intimate relationship that he has with his heavenly father that he could cry out to him. So I don't want to linger on that, but this isn't about somebody else's problems. This is about his particular distress that he's in right now. Now, when you look at this word mercy, it refers to God's tender, loving grace and compassion. That's what that word refers to. The word is also translated, and I would say more more often it's actually translated, be gracious to me. So have mercy on me, be gracious to me. Now we know that grace is all about God providing for us something that we do not deserve. Sometimes when we hear the word mercy, we assume that it only relates to God withholding some punishment or discipline that we do deserve instead of the fact that the word refers to his steadfast love, his compassion, his gracious dealings with those that he has a deep affection and concern Four. And so that's what David is saying here. Lord, show your gracious character, your tender kindness, your love towards me. Show your compassion to me. And of course, we understand that grace can only be grace if it's entirely free and it's wholly undeserved. If it was deserved, then it would be a reward that God was repaying David for services that David had, re- had rendered to God. But grace is not about what We have done for God. It's about God doing for us, even in the face of us having done nothing to deserve it. David has that same mindset in Psalm 30, verse 10, where he says, Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. The focus here is is it's on God graciously and lovingly providing help. That's why I have this section titled, God Help Me. God is our helper. He's, he's there to undertake in times of need. Now, that's not all he is, but that is one of the things that a, a parent does, a heavenly father does, is that he helps his children in times of need. Now, I, I want you to see this, though, that there are a lot of assumptions wrapped up in this request. request. So David is asking God for gracious intervention in this time of need. But in doing so, in saying effectively, have mercy on me or be gracious to me, God, it assumes some pretty significant things. First, it assumes that God would even take notice of us. There's some deep truth here. 
David could cry out to the God of the universe, the creator God, and he could say, help me. Now, David could only do that by first assuming that God would even care about him. Is that how you see God? Do you understand that God cares for you? He has a deep interest in you. He has a specific, detailed interest in you. That's a big assumption to make, though, about the God of the universe. What kind of God must this be that he would have a real personal relationship with each of his children or want to? And David sees that. There's a big assumption there. A second assumption is it assumes that God would respond lovingly if he did notice. So that God would take notice of us. That's the first assumption. Secondly is that having taken notice of us, that he would care enough about our plight or our circumstance to respond lovingly and graciously and compassionately to us. It says a lot about God and what he thinks about us. But you'd never cry out for help unless you were convinced of that. Are you convinced of that? That God loves you desperately? David was. He was. The third assumption is it, it assumes that God is capable of responding to meet the particular need. Do you see how powerful your God is? You wouldn't cry out to somebody for help or assistance if you didn't believe they were capable of helping. That would be like if you were drowning, let's call it 25 yards out into a lake, and at the beach area, there was a group of toddlers playing in the sand, and you were going to cry out to help to them. Would that do you any good? No, because they wouldn't be capable of providing the assistance that you desperately need. Do you see that your God is limitless in His power? limitless in his capability to help with whatever need you're facing. So while I don't know what your need is tonight, and I don't know what the circumstance is in particular, I know that your God is big enough to deal with it. Do you have that faith? Do you understand that? David did. And that's all built into, it's loaded into this, have mercy on me, crying out to God for help. All of those assumptions are built in there. Now you also see that it involves hearing and answering See, God, he says, hear this, and then he says, answer this. So actually the first, the first hear you say at the, see at the very beginning of verse 1 actually is answer. Answer me when I call. And then he says later on, hear my prayer. We have a God that both hears and answers our prayer. You look at 1 John 5 if you want to see that. If you're, God says he's not going to, he's going to hear us and he's going to answer our prayers. There's a New Testament example, but I want to focus on Old Testament examples here. Look at Psalm 3, just here, right there on the adjoining column, verse 4. We just looked at this a little bit ago when we, had a, when we covered that psalm. But Psalm 3, verse 4 says, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. You see, David understands that God answers prayer. He understands that God hears his prayer. Uh, he had the same mentality as he was writing Psalm Three, that God was the source of salvation, that salvation belongs to the Lord, that God is capable and able to both hear our prayers and then respond to those prayers by providing what was necessary for those circumstances. Though it doesn't always mean that he's going to rescue us from the physical side of whatever it is we're going through, but he says that I'll provide you what you need, the grace that you need, I'll be with you in that difficult difficulty. I'll undertake so that there's no trial or circumstance that you face that you'll face alone, and I'll give you all of the grace that you need to get through that. And then on top of all of that, I will use it for your benefit 
for your good and for ultimately for my glory. And so that's, David has that mindset, and you see that there just in the very first verse of this psalm. Now, what specific practical application of God's gracious, tender, loving, compassionate mercy is David requesting? There's a specific detail here. He's requesting relief from his present distress. You have relieved me in my distress. That's what he's asking God for help with, his present distress. Now, you're never going to ask God for help with a piece of distress or a period of distress or or circumstances that are bringing you distress until you recognize that you're helpless to deal with those circumstances yourself. Isn't that true? That as you're going through hard things in your life, isn't it true that you'll never call out to the Lord for help and say, help me, God, if you think that somehow you can solve your own problems? How much time do we spend foolishly, how much time do we waste, I should say, foolishly seeking to be problem solvers in our own lives before we give it to the Lord, before we ask for His guidance, His direction, His help. All too often, we have this fix-it man mentality where we see some kind of difficulty and we decide, I can deal with that myself. I can come up with some solution to that. And that's something that I naturally am prone to. Not everybody has that same personality but I kind of have a fix-it man mentality. And the God says, I don't need fix-it man, though. That's not what I need. I need faithful men. I need trusting men. Men that will give things over to me. That will trust me to undertake and direct and guide. I don't need somebody who is relying on his own intellect, their own wisdom to fix things. I need people who will see that they're helpless apart from me and they'll bring things to me. Now, this word relieve, it means to enlarge the space to make escape possible. So when he says, relieve me from my distress, enlarge the space. Imagine that you were trapped in the sense that you were uh, pinned down. So the idea here of, these, of the language is that God would tunnel out some of that stuff that was tied up against you, that was keeping you trapped so that you could escape. He would enlarge the space around you is where the word comes from. I think that's kind of fascinating. You ever kind of pictured, you know, maybe you were stuck in a, a snowbank. You were trying to make a little bit of a ford. It kind of collapsed in on you. Dig all that extra snow out from around you, and then you can wiggle free. And that's the idea there. Distress, it means just anytime you're pressed into a corner, anytime you're in a tight place. So your distress, again, is different than my distress. Whatever you're going through right now, is unique to you in some ways. Now, it's not unique to the common problems that mankind faces. I hope you remember that. That nothing befalls you that is unique to men in, in general, but it's unique to you in that moment in, in particular. That's what you're going through. And so God says, whatever that tight place is, I'm the kind of God who wants to dig out and enlarge the space around whatever it is you're going through so that you have a way of escape, to make a way of escape. Well, that's what David is asking God to do. He believes that God could do that. So I want you to see, though, we're still hung up in this first verse here, but there was a lot here. But it says, you have relieved me in my distress. So he's crying out to God for help, but he's saying, you have relieved me in in my distress. That's past tense. So what he's really saying is, have mercy on me by providing relief. That's what he's asking. Relieve me from distress now as you have previously. 
That's, that's the way to understand how he's wording that. Some other translations make that a little bit clearer. But the idea in saying, you have relieved me in my distress, that's what he's asking for in this present set of trials and circumstances. But he's actually taking the approach of, do for me now or do for me again what you've done for me in the past, God. And that's what a walk of faith starts to involve, is that it's not a one-off interaction with God in a one-off series of circumstances. It's a time and time again, over and over again, I'm coming to you, Lord, with a new set of details, but the same basic need. I need you to help undertake for me so that you can give me what I stand in need of so that I can approach or get through or handle this trial or this despair that I'm presently facing. And God says, I'll be faithful to get you through those circumstances. If you'll get your eyes on me, if you'll trust me, then the result of all that ultimately, again, is going to be you'll be able to lie down in peace and sleep For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety is the climax that we're building toward here. So then we look at verses 2 through 5. We'll move a little bit quicker now. Because David has this very present need. It's very specific to him. It's distressing to him. He's looking for God to provide some relief. But then he turns his attention in the psalm to giving advice to the adversaries or the opposition that are in fact the ones that are causing the distress. So he shifts his focus from his present need to the ones who are causing the distress and he gives them some advice. He starts to address his comments to them specifically. So he's not speaking to the Lord. He's not speaking about himself. He's speaking to those that are actually causing the distress in his life. Now again, I already mentioned that many many believe that this is tied to those that are with Absalom or a part of the rebellion against him where he's on the run here. I can't speak to that dogmatically. I guess it doesn't make that much difference. But the people, when they were turning against David, if that is in fact what this is talking about, or if that is the present distress, they weren't just rejecting David. They were rejecting the Lord. They weren't just fighting against David. In in rebelling against David, they were rebelling against the Lord because it was the Lord who had put David on the throne. The Lord had anointed David to that position. And so it was speaking to an underlying mindset of rejection and rebellion against God himself. And so David has some advice for them. Now there's at least three questions, I think it's three questions here, that set out this advice. He starts by asking three questions, and then he's going to give a series of advice to them. But let's start with the questions. First one is, how long will you turn my glory to shame? How long, and then he says, oh, you sons of men, speaking to those that are adversarial to him in this moment, will you turn my glory to shame? Now, there's a few different opinions about what that is uh, speaking of. I, some think that it's, a, it's about undermining the glory of God and that they're actually bringing shame to the Lord by rejecting and rebelling against him, and that certainly could be true. But I think with David talking, he's talking about himself. And so when he says, my glory to shame, he's speaking of his own glory. So the rebel scoffed at his glory by despising his position as king. So David's dignity and reputation are under attack by these usurpers who are seeking to overthrow him. And it, said, it, it has said previously or been used in the Old Testament to the, the glory being in reference to the one who has been anointed, 
that God is giving glory to a human instrument or vessel in the sense of anointing various kings of Israel, that that's a, a sign of God having uplifted or exalted that particular person to serve in that particular role. So take, take it however you want, but I think this is referring to David's character, his position being under attack. And so he's saying, how long are you going to continue attack my role as the God-given king of, of Israel here to attack my reputation, to attack my dignity? Because as a part of this, remember that Absalom, when he was attacking David, he was speaking all kinds of evil things about David. He spent years building up to this rebellion where he would spend his time trying to catch people before they would go to get an audience with the king, and he would say, the king has no interest in your concerns, in your affairs. He would lie, and he would say, David doesn't care about you, King David, but, but I, his son, care about you, and I'll listen to your matters, and I'll try to undertake to give some justice in this circumstance that you're going through. So he had really demeaned the character of David, and I think that's part of one of the questions here. So he's saying to these acting in rebellion, how long are you going to do that? Now the second question is, how long will you love worthlessness? What a great line. How long will you love worthlessness? And it refers to lusting after things that are empty or vain. Something is worthless if it has no value. If it's empty. If It'd be similar to what Solomon says when he concludes in Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Apart from a right relationship with God, apart from living life with Him, apart from Him directing an undertaking where you're enjoying this intimacy with Him, life has no purpose or meaning, was the conclusion of Solomon, who is another of David's sons, we know, that ultimately would replace him as king not Absalom, whose life ended tragically. So, how long are you going to keep loving things that have no value, that are empty and vain, they're worthless? I'll tell you what, that's an accurate description of anything that you're seeking to replace God with. There are people he's speaking to specifically who are rebelling against God by rebelling against Him, who are rejecting God, disobeying God, and they're doing it in a way where they're attacking David himself. We'll get to it in a second, but he's not writing about random strangers or foreign countries, foreign powers who are seeking to overthrow him. He's writing about his fellow Israelites who are rejecting God and rebelling against God and him, seeking to kill him. So we're talking about a nation that is supposed to be a set-apart nation of faith that could attract the Gentiles around them to God's truth by shining a light so bright that those around them would say, who are these people and who is their God? That they could be a testimony to others. But you know what? When the nation, just like when we at church age have a similar mission, though we haven't replaced Israel, but we have a similar mission to be as members in the church age of, God, of, of the body of believers, to be light bearers, ambassadors for Jesus Christ. To shine into the world, to shine into the darkness, even though the world is crooked and perverse. We have a mission to shine Jesus into that darkness. But you know, the thing about that is it's not going to occur. The mission isn't going to take place when we're sidetracked by things other than God, 
if everything other than God, everything that originates in the world, everything that the flesh is seeking after is worthless, if we take what's worthwhile and replace it with what's worthless, we're not going to fulfill our mission, are we? We're going to be the ones described by loving worthlessness. And at any point in time, the Christian is certainly capable of acting just like these Israelites were here who were rejecting and rebelling against God. We're, we're capable of that too. But, but what caused it? What caused it is having their first love replaced by a love for something else. And you have to just ask yourself, what are those something else's that are affecting my thinking, are causing me to get off track, are distracting me from my mission, such that I would presently be described as one who was loving worthlessness. We keep moving on. The third question he says is, you have to read this into it, but how long will you seek falsehood? How long will you seek falsehood? Same kind of idea, but it speaks less of actively pursuing lies and what is false, and it's more focused on accepting an alternate source of truth besides God alone. How long will you be influenced by what is false is, is a better idea of that. You see, because Absalom had all kinds of fancy things to say. He had all kinds of things to say about how much better of a king he would be than David. He could woo them with empty promises and vain things and being gullible, not having the eyes on the prize. We're just as susceptible to the enemy's whispers, his lies, the things that he dangles in front of us, the carrots that he's putting in front of us, the baubles and the trinkets and the nothingness that he puts in front of us to distract us. To have yourself and your own thinking start accepting a source of truth, or claim truth, I should say, because it's not real truth, but accept as true something that is coming from a source other than God. So he says, how long? How long? How long? How long are you going to allow those things to be true of you? Now, these, all three of these responses are the natural default for the flesh. You have to remember that. You're susceptible to each one of these. It's always going to be true of you when you're captivated by something other than God that you're seeking after then things that are worthless. Because if he's the only source of things that are worthwhile, then by, by default, if you're seeking after something beside him, then this is true of you. The other thing to consider is that when you follow vain things or worthless things, when you believe falsehoods, you're going to go astray. It's common sense, right? I'm trusting in, I'm being influenced by vain and false things. Of course, the path that that's going to lead me down is going to be a path that is apart from and different and distinct from the path that God has for me. Now, why do you act so surprised by that? Why do we find ourselves chasing after things that are worthless, but then being surprised at the place they bring us? We get captivated by things we know better. We know they're worthless. And yet then we act surprised when we come to the end of ourselves and figure out where it is that we are. Well, this isn't where God wanted me to be. Well, of course not. How could something apart from Him, something distinct from Him, ever bring you to a place that He was leading? It wouldn't even be possible. 
So then David's now going to offer specific points of advice, and they're all communicated with these action verbs. Let's start with verse 3 here. But know, that's the first one, but know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. See, David is associating himself with being godly, and he's telling them, you have to know or remember that the Lord is going to set apart for himself those who are godly. He's not going to honor those who are rebelling against him. You cannot respond to the truth without first being mindful of it. And I think that's why David starts his advice with this no. You have to know what is true. You can't identify or discern what is false in your life. You find yourself seeking after what's false or this falsehood that was just described there in verse 2. You find yourself in that place where you have substituted God's truth for Satan's lies. How did that happen? That happened because you're not presently knowing what God says is true. You're not meditating on what God says is true. So you've got to start by knowing what is true. You have to be mindful of that. Now recall that this is being written in a covenantal context where they're in a covenant relationship with God under the Mosaic covenant of obey and what? Be blessed or disobey and be cursed. So there's not necessarily, not every bit of this has a direct application to our lives, but he's saying apart from being godly or responding in faith to what God says is right and what he's laid out, as the, his, his requirements, what he's laid out as his law. Without adhering to that or, or having an interest in that, God is never going to bless that. That's really a summary of what he's, what he's saying here. God's never going to bless rebellion. So he's saying effectively, if I was rephrasing this, remember you who are currently distressing me, that God rejects rebellion and disobedience, disobedience and will not allow it to prosper. He will not allow it to prosper. That's what he's really saying that you need to know here. Know that the Lord has set apart from him, for himself him who is godly. He has said, I will bless the one that is seeking after me, and that is obeying me and my plan as I've laid, out, laid it out for him in the Mosaic law, in this specific context. But for you and I, the context is very similar. Do you think that rebellion and rejection against God is going to prosper? Do you think that God is going to honor that or bless that? No, God's going to seek to change your thinking. How does God do that? Chastening. Get a hold of your thinking. Convince you that you're out in left field, that your thinking is wrong. As a loving father... He wants to restore you into a right relationship with him. We're talking not, not positionally, but practically, to be in practical fellowship with him. And he'll do that by getting a hold of your attention, getting your attention one way or the other. But he's never going to honor or bless or come alongside of an attitude that is rejecting him and rebelling against him and doing its own thing. He's never going to prosper that. Never. He can never use that in your life. He needs to convince you that that's where you're at in your thinking so that you can align your, get your eyes back on him, acknowledge that you've done wrong, that you've gone down your own path, that you're, you're not operating the way he wants you to be operating in faithful dependence on him as a yielded instrument to him. He wants to get you to be aware of that, to acknowledge that, and then he wants to then undertake to direct through the leading of his spirit to guide you in a place and a direction that will be beneficial to you in time will be beneficial to you in eternity, will bring him honor and glory all along the way. That's God's, that's God's plan. But he says, just remember this. 
You see, David sees himself in alignment with God's truth. And because of that, he's confident that God will intervene to bless or protect him. And what's the reverse of that? To discipline those who are operating in disobedience and rebellion. Rebellion. So he's reminding them of that in verse 3. The second part here, the second specific advice, another action verse, starting in verse 4a, be angry and do not sin. So know that God isn't going to bless rebellion against him. Next part of it is be angry and do not sin. Another action verb here. But the idea there is change course. You see, although God loves sinners, he hates sin. He reminds people of that over and over in his word. So he's saying, be angry and do not sin. The focus there is change course, change direction. You see, one who is presently directed by the Lord should develop a distaste for sin rather than an appetite for it. The one who is presently directed by the Lord should develop a distaste for sin. If I'm being led by God's Spirit and God's Spirit is incompatible with sin, then I should develop a distaste for it instead of an appetite for it. And all too often, when we're leaning on our own understanding, we're operating with a false sense of spirituality where we think we're doing really well in our faith. When we're really not, we're deceived, self-deceived, deceived by Satan himself. What could Satan do better than to convince you that you're doing really well when you're not? That's a pretty effective attack, isn't it? So that you're, you're clueless to the level of problem that you're actually experiencing. How would you ever see a need to turn your focus and turn your gaze to the Lord so he could undertake to make some changes and adjustment if you're, in your life if you're so out of it that you don't even recognize that a problem exists? That'd be pretty effective, wouldn't it? Just like it'd be really effective for Satan to convince you that you know all of the truth that you need to know. And that there's nothing more for you to learn. Give you this proud, arrogant attitude about your intellect and your understanding of Scripture, your understanding of the things of faith, so that you'd stay home instead of coming out to hear the teaching of the Word of God. That instead of fellowshipping with other believers around the Word of God, you talk about something else because in your mind you've got it all figured out and there's nothing left for you to learn. Wouldn't that be effective if Satan could convince you that was true? You'd never grow at all. In any event, I digress. Be angry and do not sin. Align yourself with him. Align yourself. If you're going to align yourself with him, you're going to align yourself with what is right. Romans 12, 9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling instead to what is good. See, the spiritually minded believer will develop a distaste for what is ungodly because he'll be walking in such close union with God himself that he will see how dangerous sin really is as it takes a person away from fellowship and intimacy with God, which is the thing that God desperately wants us to experience in life so that he can use us in the way he wants to use us. The next one, verse 4b, another action verb, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. There's a lot there, but the idea is search your thinking. Search your thinking or your inner control center. The heart refers to where your volition is, where your intellect is. And do it in a place of quiet contemplation. It's not like this is the only place to do it on your bed. It's just given as an example of a place of quiet where you can contemplate and search out your heart. Where is my thinking really at? So know this about God. Okay, Learn to have 
a distaste for the things that are in opposition to him. And search your soul, search your heart. Where are you really at in a place of quiet contemplation? Now, the be still is usually translated as be silent. Most translations have it that way. Now, that refers to this change of attitude. That should cause you to shut your mouth about the things you've been speaking in opposition to God and the rebellious attitude and heart that you've been participating in. Let that go by the wayside. Let your mouth go silent as it relates to this present or this previous act of rebellion and heart of rebellion that you had against God. So silence the internal voice of opposition is more the idea there. It's not about, it's not about some, some sort of mechanical approach to getting right with God. It's just that that will be the result of searching your heart and turning your gaze back to the Lord in a, in a faithful dependence on Him. Now, what's the next thing? Verse 5, the next action verb is offer the sacrifices of righteousness. So now once I've got my thinking right, then that should then lead to a corresponding change in behavior. So the changed thinking corresponds then with a proper approach to God. So instead of rebelling against God, rejecting God, seeking to cast out the legitimate God-appointed king of Israel, instead of doing that, I'm going to worship God the way he instructed me to worship him. Now, Old Testament context here, under the Mosaic law, we have the ceremonial law, we have the sacrificial system in place here. But that, you know, that really isn't the focus. The focus is approaching God the way he's prescribed himself to be approached. And it happens to be with sacrifices of righteousness here. Now you could say it's not specifically addressing the physical sacrifice. It's referring to a mental sacrificial mindset where you set yourself aside, death to self and putting God in the place of the one that is directing and undertaking so that I subject myself to him, that it's about a right thinking and a right attitude. I think this is actually a continuation of the changed thinking, though, from verse 4, and it results or it presents itself there in, in changed behavior as now I approach God in the prescribed manner. If you have a different take on it, you know, certainly that, that is up to you. That is, that, that is fine. I don't think you'd have to be dogmatic about that. But then what's the last one here? 5b. Put your trust in God, the last action verb of this advice that David has for the ones who are seeking to overthrow him and the ones that are causing him the distress. What you really need is to put your trust in the Lord. And so it's like a summary or conclusion of everything else that he said. Now compare, compare this to the rebels' misplaced trust in Absalom. Instead of trusting the Lord, they've been trusting in somebody else who's been feeding them lies. Or compare it to Absalom's own personal trust in his own leadership or his army or his clever strategy or his popularity with the people. Any plan that rejects God and refuses to trust him is destined to fail. The problem or the focus of all of this is trust the Lord. When you're operating with this heart of rebellion and rejection of him, you need to get back to a place mentally where you've searched your, searched your heart, found out where you're really at, considered those things deliberately, and turned your face back to him, turned your gaze back to him, aligned your thinking with his thinking. Learn to trust him and depend on him, be led by him, be directed by him, instead of what was getting in the way. So then we get to the last section here, verses 6 through 8. I will trust when I cannot see. Because sometimes trusting God is hard. And David recognizes that. And so he's going to say 
effectively he's going to say that. Let's read verse 6. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Who will show us any good? And that's specifically directed at God. Where's God's goodness is what they're saying there. And you see, people are naturally skeptical and full of doubt. That response of who's going to show us any good? Where's the goodness of God? That's natural. And there's many who say that. It's not just a few that experience that. There's many who come to a place in their life where they're saying, where is there any good in this life? But to say that is to say, God isn't good or forget that God is good all of the time. See, David is likely, again, referring to his fellow Israelites here. This isn't about some kind of a mental thought process of pagans who never had any access to God's truth. These are those who are supposed to be emissaries or light shiners for God himself. And that should cause you some to take pause because even those who are set apart as a nation of lights in the darkness are susceptible to the attack of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The enemies are real. The enemy within, the enemy without, the enemy all around you. It's real. And it can cause somebody to have this mindset when who, if anybody on planet earth should have known about God's goodness, shouldn't it have been those that were in the nation of Israel? How many times had God showed up in their lives in spectacular, miraculous ways? Many times. So many times that the nations around them would speak of God's acts as directed toward the nation of Israel. So where they should have been a continuation of God's own testimony for himself, he had declared himself in a way that was publicized to the nations around, they should have also been lifting him up, shining his light. But just remember, anyone, any member of of any man or woman of faith is susceptible to that. Now, imagine Satan laughing and smirking as he watches men and women of faith begin to question and doubt the very goodness of God. Can you imagine yourself being in a place, and I hope you can because this is true in all of our lives at times, where presently you're saying something along the lines of, where is God's goodness? God who has been so good to you, who has undertaken in your life in so many different ways, has shown up time and time again when you had done absolutely nothing to deserve it. He had loved you beyond measure. He had bankrupt heaven to save your soul. He had made a way where there was no way for you to be rescued from the condemnation that you were on under from your own sin. In addition to that, he put his own spirit inside of you and he sealed you with that spirit to give you absolute assurance of your eternal destiny. He then undertook to provide for every spiritual need and blessed you with every sp- spiritual blessing. He gave you his truth. He gave you his roadmap. He gave you other believers. He even gave you local churches to be a part of. He undertook and blessed you over and over and over again. And when you get to a place when you're, where you're saying, where's God's goodness? It's natural. But just imagine how Satan must laugh at that. You see, God is good all the time. His goodness never fails. The issue isn't that God is no longer good, but it's that people are looking for goodness in the wrong places. People are looking for goodness with the wrong perception of what goodness entails. The reason you're saying that is because you think goodness looks a certain way because the world has conned you. Satan has conned you into thinking that way. 
But we need to keep moving. But David now, he asked the Lord to remind them of his presence. I will trust when I cannot see. David says, remind us. Show us yourself, Lord. Show us yourself. Reveal yourself to us in a way that would be impactful to these people who are operating in unbelief. And, of course, he includes himself in that because he says, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. He says us. He includes himself with the people that he's been referring to who are the source of his own agitation, the source of the trial in his life. He includes himself in that. So he says, Lord, reaffirm yourself to us. And the imagery is used here of the lighting up of your countenance upon us. It's used as a metaphor of prosperity, victory, salvation. Show yourself, God, show up in this real trial that I'm going through in a way that would be impactful to people. Is it wrong to pray that? No. When you're going through hard things, can you be praying that Lord, the Lord would even show himself by answering prayer in a very specific way? No, that's not wrong. Does God promise he's always going to answer prayer the way you want him to answer prayer? No. Should that shake your faith? No. Because you should always come back to God's faithfulness and his goodness and the unchangeable nature of his character. But that's effectively what this is saying. Show yourself to us. See, God is viewed as revealing himself through some visible physical means here. Or light up, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. In some way, whether it's physical or spiritual, God, show these individuals, include myself in it, show them that you're real again so that they quit rebelling against you and rejecting you. Now I'll say this, young children are often needing assurance of their parents' presence. So is it wrong to say, God, remind me of your presence? No. He's not here right now, so I put him on the spot a little bit. My, my son, when he was young, sometimes he would get, he'd get scared at nighttime when he was in his bed. Other times, it wouldn't have anything to do with fear. He just didn't want to sleep alone. So maybe even a nap time. But when he'd go down, he'd be in, in bed and you'd be in with him and you'd be just waiting for him to go to sleep so you could sneak out of there. Get back to your own bed. Oh, that makes me a bad parent. <laughs> so you'd be trying to listen to his breathing, see if he'd, he'd finally be sleeping. Sometimes you'd be convinced that he was finally sleeping soundly enough that you could sneak off to your own bed. And without fail, his little arm would reach back And feel to see if you were still there. This is what David's talking about. Remind us, God, that you're still there. Show us, show us yourself. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. David includes himself in needing to be reminded of God's presence in his life. So then David reflects on the joy that this walk of faith makes possible. When I can trust God, when I can put my confidence in him, what does he do? What is the result of that attitude, that heart response? Verse 7, you have put gladness in my heart. And then he says, it's more than even this time of bounty where there was this wonderful harvest that got taken in. It's way more than that. It's a gladness that no physical circumstances could ever, or physical prosperity could ever bring. It's a, it's a gladness that transcends all of that. It's a gladness that's in my soul because I've been reminded of your presence and I've learned to trust you. So then he concludes with verse 8 here, the where the title of our message comes from. It's a summary of the practical result of trusting the Lord. This is a, a good description of what the application would be of actually learning to trust the Lord, being reminded of his goodness, being reminded of his presence in your life. It says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, 
O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. Now, remember this. At the time David is saying this, he's writing this this verse, which is an amazing verse. Absolutely nothing has changed about his circumstances. His physical circumstances, by the time he writes and pens the eighth verse of this song, a psalm, a poem, nothing has changed. The only thing that's changed is he's worked himself through this progression of thought where now he's in a place where being reminded of God's goodness, reminded of God's presence in his life, putting his trust in the Lord, all of those thoughts bring him to a place where he's absolutely confident of God's ability to help him. So now he's cried out to the Lord for help. He's cast it, given it to him in a time of distress. He's thought through about God's faithfulness. He's thought through about how we need to have our trust in the Lord and how God his presence is always with us. And then he concludes with this. That causes me to be able to lie down and sleep peacefully, even though nothing has changed about my circumstances. What had changed? He had given things to the Lord. The difference was that peace replaced distress. And it did that when David cast his cares on the Lord and simply trusted him to undertake. All of the focus in verse 8 here is on the Lord and how he alone can provide safety. He alone can solve the problems that we're facing. He alone that can, can provide peace in the face of the distress that we're presently being surrounded by. It says, you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David hadn't done anything to make his own circumstances better. In fact, nothing had happened with the circumstances. David hadn't given himself peace. He found peace in learning to trust God in the face of the distress that he was going through. So our title is Peaceful Sleep. Peaceful Sleep. And the question is, are you weary? Are you fatigued tonight? Are you struggling to sleep restfully? You see, that's a universal problem at different times in our lives. We're fatigued. We're tired. We're struggling to sleep restfully. But you know what? There's a universal solution to that problem too. And that's to trust the Lord with whatever it is you're going through. Now, there's a lot of different ways to say trust the Lord. Depend on him. Relying. I'm relying on him to undertake in this trial that I'm going through. Give it to him. Take that weight off your own chest and give it to him. Sometimes another way of saying that would be to let go. I'm really clinging and holding on to this trial or difficulty or whatever it is I'm going through. I need to let go of it. Now, like Alice Mackey has on a plaque in her apartment, let go, let God popular kind of a saying. Cast it upon him. Think of it that way. Maybe you're pulling it off yourself and you're throwing it over to him. That's a nice visual way to think about trusting God. Stop fighting it, though. Stop trying to fix it. Stop struggling and start trusting. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And what does he say? I will give you rest. See, the result of coming to him with your distress and affliction is, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for this wonderful Psalm number four. Pray that it would have been impactful on our thinking and in our lives. Pray that we would apply some of these truths to whatever it is that we're going through in life and that we would be reminded of it over and over again as we tend to forget these things. Thank you that you love us so much that you haven't, 
personal and intense interest in us individually. Pray that we would see that that's the kind of God you are. Pray that we would know that your goodness never fails. Pray that we would then trust you because we've seen your faithfulness in the past and we know that you'll continue to be faithful in the future. Thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.